Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. I'm here with my friend, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, how Hi. is it? How's it going? Good, Rob. How are you this week? It's late fall, so... <laughs> it is. Isn't it? it? Is. It's mid-fall. It's not late it, fall. Uh, okay. It's like right in the middle of fall, right okay. in the, the dead of fall. Has it, yeah. gotten, has it gotten super duper cold in Boston yet? Yes. I mean, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a turtleneck sweater. <laughs> You're wearing it. <laughs> yes, it's cold. You are it wearing... was raining last week. Like, yes, it's cold. It's you, the heat's on. Like, yeah. What that is, like... that sweater you're wearing is yeah. very Boston. That is it like, is very... that is like, I, I, it's almost like two sweaters in one because <laughs> yeah. the, tr the thing folds over oh, yeah, so much that it creates a barrier totally. of, against the cold. Yeah. Yep. I don't, yeah, I don't have to wear those as much here anymore. So that's good. Yeah, that is good. But it's nice. That's cozy sweater weather is what you're saying. Yeah, totally. Awesome. All right. So Rob, want to know what's going on this week? What is happening this week? So this week on an Inclusive Collective, we'll be talking to four-time Paralympian, Paralympic wow. medalist, Ali Jawad about the first ever complete fitness app specifically made for people living with disabilities. We'll also discuss Microsoft's embedding of DEI into performance reviews and Goldman Sachs diversity decline. And then later, I'll rant about Stephen Miller's America First Legal's Next Target. And Rob, you're going to rave about Election Day Firsts. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Should we get to the deets? Let's get to the deets. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Goldman Sachs, right? And so you mentioned it. According to Bloomberg Equity, Goldman Sachs revealed their list of promotions to managing director. I did not make it this year, <laughs> but uh, they do this every year, every other year. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal because there are people that inside the firm have the inside track to become partners, sure. make tons of cash. And uh, these people also get access to 
learning opportunities, leadership development. So apparently this year's class was less diverse than the 2021 class. Only about 2% promoted were black and about 4% were Latine. Uh, women remained flat from that cycle at about 30%. And so, um, yeah, I mean, representation numbers, we know they're pretty sticky, right? And so this yeah. is something that uh, they're dealing with. So what did you, I, I said this to you, what did you, what did you, you think? You did. Yeah. I mean, are we surprised? It's <laughs> terrible little. to say, but yeah. Um, so, you know, just a question. Did did some of these people who are not promoted, did they end up leaving or what are, what's their, do we know if there's an exit for them or like, what's the deal? It's probably a little bit of a, you know, if, you, if you're not promoted, you start looking around and saying, you know, are there other opportunities at other banks? Sure. For example, I think it's, it's probably indicative of the pipeline not being big enough as well. It's probably, yeah. it's, yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah. it didn't talk about the promotion rate, which is the percent of Black people that were eligible that were then promoted. Sure. This was, that 2% is the overall class. It's, it's 2% Black, yeah. which is a very low number. Yeah. So, for, for, from my perspective, you know, I'll continue to reiterate it that, the majority of bias is in interpersonal interactions with people and decision making. And so here are decisions of where we provide development opportunities or lack of development opportunities and promotional opportunities to particular people. And so the question is, where's the equity that's built in? Like, how are we, what's the system that we're creating to really kind of check if we are being equitable and a lot of that is personal reflection and like questioning where the bias is in the process. And, you know, if we're not going to put quotas in place and we're not going to put sort of goals in place, then the question is like, are you looking at your promotional processes in a way that is as unbiased as possible, mitigating that bias? And then is the the graduating class or whatever it's called, like the new <laughs> managing director class or, or cohort are, is it as diverse? Is it representative of the organization? And so the question, the answer here is no, it's not. Um, and so it's a little sad to see. I'm I'm not surprised. I mean, we see this often that we recruit people diverse. We recruit. I'm going to put in quotes diversity, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like we recruit candidates that build help us build diverse teams, but we don't put in place the mechanisms to continue to develop them professionally and personally offer them opportunities for advancement and that's kind of the struggle because again decisions have bias in them and so that's I'll it's I know this is not a rant but you know <laughs> here we are <laughs> <laughs> that's the show no I mean I think that yeah so a lot of good thoughts there the representation numbers as I said are very sticky right so a few years ago if you have a large workforce it's hard to come back from that right like if you if you started to be non-diverse and in 2021 you decide i'm going to be i'm going to change what representation looks like in my organization it's really hard to move the needle over time right sure. so because like i think uh, a couple of years ago mckenzie they calculated that it would take black employees 95 years to reach representational parity at okay. all levels within private enterprise based on the rates of hiring promotion and then retention well, what year are they in right now like what's year that five <laughs> wait <laughs> So you're two years into 95 years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but that was, you know, but that was true in 2020, 2021. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when these companies made their big commitments. And so 
it's something that they made big commitments and then now they're understanding just how hard it is to do. It's also interesting that these masters of the universe that can figure out anything, right? Mm. Quantitatively. Yes. They can figure anything out, but this this problem is just Forecasting too, ability is like <laughs> it's just too quantitatively unreal. challenging for them to pull off, right? Like so they um so yeah, I mean I think that uh it's it, it is interesting. It's not it's not surprising, but it is a little surprising that they didn't get better over two years. Yeah, you know, we we both I mean, I know I, I have friends who work at Goldman Sachs, for example. I I'm sure you do too. Um I actually, I, I will, what I'll say about Goldman Sachs is I appreciate the transparency that they offer to people like you and I to kind of scrutinize like their process. At least they're being transparent around their promotional, um, you know, outlook. Again, what are, what are, I would challenge them and say like, what are you doing to look into your processes and make sure that the the bias is mitigated, that it isn't equitable. And then the fear is like, it costs organizations like over the tens of thousands, sometimes like in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to onboard an employee. And so like you're, the risk of you bringing on these new, these employees over time, and then you not providing them advancement opportunities, they're going to leave. They are going to be disgruntled. They're going to leave. They're going to seek opportunities somewhere else. So it's really in your best interest as a leader in an organization to like figure out your process, make it as equitable as possible, retain those people and foster that inclusive culture that you're really trying to that that I think are within the values that you, you know, say <laughs> that exist. Yep, I totally agree. Again, not a rant, but here I am. So I'll go into the next um, deed here. So to make diversity sustainable and widespread, Microsoft's chief diversity officer, Lindsay Ray McIntyre, explained to Fortune magazine that about five years ago, the company took a more structural approach to hold employees accountable to company-wide DEI goals where all employees must set a diversity-related development goal in their annual performance. Sorry, so like their annual performance mm -hmm, review. Mm -hmm. Internally, it's called the DEI core priority. It's a set of actions based on prefer, uh, personal reflections, which, you know, I love. And meant to align with and promote the company DEI pr priorities for that year. And this could be anything from like learning opportunities, nurturing allyship behavior, facilitating critical conversations, or leveraging feedback to understand and improve. I'll pause there. What are some of your thoughts? So we did this at uh, a company that uh, I spent some time with, uh, some some version of this, right? Uh -huh. And to some mixed success, I, I think the the idea is that we need to push down responsibility for implementing diversity, equity, inclusion to at least our middle managers and, and our frontline managers as well in order mm -hmm. to, because they can have an outsized impact. And so that is true. It has to go along with the learning for that group to be able to, you know, to, to have some, uh, you know, your success here would depend on the facility of that manager, frontline or middle manager with DEI to have some impact. So it is an opportunity to engage with that group and have a conversation, talk about why it's important. And you can tell that Microsoft also has some guardrails here on the program that they developed. Uh, they, they, you know, let the manager align themselves with the areas of impact They make sure that there are success measures in place, you know, but I do think that knowing Microsoft, they also 
take a very thoughtful approach to some things you were just talking about, which is driving equity from the top down, making sure your systems and your processes are in place in order to uh, facilitate some of the things that you're trying to do. So yeah. it's, 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 I think they're probably attacking it from all angles. And yeah. so it's just really important that, that we don't rely upon uh, things like this uh, and, 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 you know, managers facilitating these conversations. We build you know, our systems and processes to make sure that we're taking full advantage of the things that they're learning. Yeah. Like it can't be done. Like that's the, the, it can't be the sole kind of piece into solving for this. For sure. One thing that I found interesting was like, so Microsoft's taken steps to tie executive compensation to achieving diversity and inclusion goals. Um, and they do, they're doing this by linking metrics to performance reviews and compensation but, you know, their their aim is really to align employee efforts with its broader commitment to DEI. So it's just interesting. I will say, like, based off of like the work that, you know, you and I have been doing for for many years now, Microsoft is a pretty mature organization mm-hmm. in terms of their re- like first their resources, their budget, I'm sure they're. The, you know, over 250,000 employees at the organization, they've probably been working on DEI for probably over a decade. Mm. And so, again, when I say mature, like they've done a lot of this work, they've implemented different solutions and programs. And this is kind of the next step that I would see a, a, a good step into understanding how you can promote behavioral change. And this is just a different avenue, right? So like you said, it's not the sole um, solution to solve for something, but it absolutely is something to consider. And in alignment with that, it's really understand behaviorally like a framework that can be leveraged or used to understand in those conversations of performance evaluations, like what's expected of people? How do we inclu- you know, behave inclusively or how do we promote diversity and, and equity in our conversations and our decision-making process and so on? And so what I love is, yes, there are some things to to probably flush out. But what I do love about this is the the focus on the behaviors and the the reflection piece in performance evaluations, whether whether that's self-reflection or maybe peer-to-peer reflection of ob- observations of peers of how folks are behaving equitably and inclusively. So, you know, again, just really the focus is is fostering that culture that drives diversity and actively works against mitigating bias. Yeah, I think you nailed it, right? So, I mean, it's it's a very holistic approach, and I wouldn't, if I was a, an immature or a company that was uh, starting out in some of these areas, yeah. I wouldn't just read that article and, <laughs> yeah, and say yeah, I'm going to make everyone make a diversity, equity, inclusion goal at all levels of the organization, and then start uh, incentivizing yes, leaders and, no. and, and tying their conversation. I think that's something that you get to by having a very uh, well thought out and holistic program in place. Yeah, approach to it. Absolutely. Well, that's it for the deets. Um, We'll be right back with Ali Javad. Welcome back, folks. This week on Inclusive Collective, we welcome Ali Javad. Ali is a four-time Paralympian powerlifter, Paralympic medalist, and a PhD candidate. Ali is also one of two Crohn sufferers in history to win a medal at an Olympic or Paralympic game. He is the co-founder and COO of Size, the first complete fitness app especially designed for the disability community, where their mission is changing access to exercise. Ali Javad, welcome to Inclusive Collective. We're so happy to have you here. 
Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful to meet you. Thanks again for being here. I want to talk about Accessorize and all the great work you're doing there. But you're a Paralympian powerlifter, so I have to start there. I'm sorry. Like, we got to go. I, I need to know more. So can you just kind of give us that journey? When did you realize that you have this talent and the strength? How do you get into it? Uh, and then obviously we'll, we'll talk about what that leads to with, with regard to the, the app that you launched. Yeah, so to give you some context, um, I was born as a double leg amputee. Um, and when I was six, I watched the 96 Olympic Games in Atlanta. And I watched a man called, I think you guys might know him, uh, Michael Johnson. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I watched him obviously create history at the time. Uh, I knew what I, what I was seeing was historic. And it was his um, reaction on the podium that really struck me. Um, he was very emotional. And I thought to myself, I'd like to feel what he was feeling. Um, mm. So I, yeah, since I was six, I wanted to be a Paralympian. So I guess fast forward 20 odd years and... I competed at four Paralympic Games and yeah, luckily I won a medal and I got to meet him. So uh, oh, yeah, everything, so cool. everything was good. That's amazing. Yeah, so, I just wanted to, yeah, I just so. want to tell you, you know, I was also inspired by Michael Johnson and I had the, there's a Sports Illustrated cover uh, of Michael Johnson. I did not become an Olympic athlete though after <laughs> no, being inspired. Not. So you definitely, so that's, that's pretty cool. That's great. So then tell us about how you went about co-founding Exercise. Yeah, by accident is probably what I'd say. Um, so my sport is powerlifting and I grew up in gyms since I was 16. Okay. And when you grew up in gyms, I guess what I realized was that I was the only disabled person in the gym. There was nobody else like me. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't understand why at the time. Was it because I wanted to get to a Paralympic Games? Was I different? What were the barriers stopping disabled people getting fit and active? and actually integrating into society in gyms. Mm -hmm. And then during lockdown, I was training to, for the Tokyo Paralympic Games, but obviously you've got more time on your hands. And I started kind of reflecting deeply about what, what, is, what is the barrier here? So I realized that the fitness industry is massive, especially the fitness app industry. Mm -hmm. There are, I think there are 71,000 fitness apps on the market. 71,000? Oh my gosh. Huge. <laughs> yeah. So for a non-disabled person, you've got a lot of options. However, none especially catered for disability, which was a shock. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, one, that's shocking. And two, you literally got nearly 20% of the global population that, that are disabled that have no access to a fitness app. Mm -hmm. And I thought that had to change. Was I the right person? I don't know. But something inside of me said, I've got to do this. You know, I've I've got to at least put something out there just to show the industry that it can be done, and we can um, try and break down the barriers and yeah, create something that makes disabled people exercise independently. So um, yeah, that's that's what happened really. I'm just thinking about and so obviously the fitness market, the um, the phys you know the the physical location space mark side of the market is also not super inclusive as well it's not inclusive right and so um and i just wonder uh, you know is is that changing is that part of you know what you're, what you're trying to, to to solve for as well yeah so how the app works is i guess three different ways 
to make it a complete fitness app for disability. Mm-hmm. So one, we have a unique exercise library, which is disability specific. So every video uh, in the library. So for example, as a double leg amputee, I only get shown videos performed by somebody of a double leg amputation. Okay. So we so we don't give out training programs. The user creates their own training session from the videos. So they're in full control at any time, um, which makes it incredibly unique. Two, uh, we've got an explore section that allows the user to rate the accessibility of any gym or sporting facility in the local area. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because this is public, it means that one, the gym and the facility will understand whether or not they're accessible. But two, the user understands where to go on the map mm-hmm. when it comes to the best rated facilities rated by disabled people. Um, and obviously free, we've got a social hub where I thought it was important to have a community in the app that supports each other and motivates each other. But I think for me, I really wanted to kind of not only to challenge the fitness industry, but actually have data to drive that change, which has never really been done before in this way. You're speaking Rob's love language. <laughs> data to inform decisions. I love and, that. And, and how are those gyms doing? Because I would say that they, they're probably not doing well. Yes, yeah, so you In terms right. of the um, feedback that they're getting from the people that want to go there and, and, be, and demand more accessible uh, facilities. Yeah, so the issue is that we have is that accessibility is different for different disabilities. Right. So you can't have an umbrella where it's just one category for everybody. So at the moment, unfortunately, because of we're so young, we've only got one rating system. But in the future, we're going to have impairment-specific accessibility criteria based on the user where they can actually input that data for us when they go to gym. So, for example, a blind person could say, you know, this gym is not accessible because of this reason, or we get a person with a spinal cord injury saying that if they're in a wheelchair, we can't fit through machines or in between machinery. So like eventually we'll get to a point where the explore section becomes very impairment specific, mm-hmm. which means that gyms can actually target how to make things accessible. Yet again, it's not been done. It's going to be difficult. We understand the challenge. There's no blueprint, but hopefully we're going to, we are going to make mistakes, but for me, we've just got to do it now. I'm sick and tired of talking about it and, having consultations, I think somebody has to step up and just do something. And that's what we're trying to do. That's great, Ali. And I'm just curious. I'm fascinated by, one, your background. And I'm curious, like, how your background has informed your entrepreneurial journey. And I would imagine, because it sounds like no one else has really tried to do what you're doing. So I'm curious, in this space and on in your journey, like, have you faced specific challenges within the startup journey or different startup phases in terms of, you know, designing the app or getting funding or so like, what are some of the hiccups or challenges that you faced along the way? Uh, Loads is probably the answer. Um, So I guess my background is in tech. So I can't code. I'm not a tech engineer. Um, I'm not an entrepreneur by trade. I'm literally an elite athlete. However, the elite athlete landscape, it's a, li- it's a bit like startup landscape where you know, you've got a shared vision of trying to get to the top level and you have a team around you to try to get you there and you have to try and adapt to anything thrown at you. It's the same in the startup world. When we pitched it to a lot of early investors, they said there's no market. 
which is crazy. You've got mm-hmm. 1.2 billion disabled people and there's no market. Right. The issue we were having was there's no disability fitness data because it's never been collected. Mm-hmm. But mm. we're trying to say to people, we have the opportunity to create a market that's never been served. Imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always compare it to the sports supplement industry where, you know, 40 years ago, you had, I think, whey milk as like the first kind of supplement. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger actually like promoted that with <laughs> Joe Wheeler. But that created a ripple effect where now you've got a sports supplement industry worth billions a year. Somebody has to start a market. And I think we're, we're about to do that. And hopefully, you know, a legacy of loads of other fitness apps out there that cater for disability and actually have some rivals. But that's the dream. Yeah, course. I would, I mean, I don't know if you've, gone or explored this but as well but i'm just wondering you know we, we talk to disability accessibility experts all the time and i'm always struck by the fact that we're, we all are going to pass through some level of physical ability disability as we as we mature <laughs> i i experience yeah. that in my in my age at this point so it seems like that that the app could serve people uh, as they uh, encounter different uh, things over the course of their life as well in, in terms of their fitness yeah, so in the UK, I think 45% of the disability population are over 45. Mm-hmm. So what we tried to do is the app eventually will cater for as many disabilities as physically possible. We've also got a long way to get there because at the moment we cater for six disabilities. But for me, like I think people need to be very patient with us because it's very, very hard to get a disability into the app to the standard we got it at because of the due diligence we have to go through. It's not like a generic mm-hmm. fitness app where you can just have content every week and shoot it. Mm-hmm. We have to go away and really research the disability, the limitations of it in terms of physically and mentally and emotionally, and then start planning exercises to suit all the, I guess, the spectrum within that disability. And obviously some disabilities have got a spectrum. So cerebral palsy, I think it's like four subcategories. Mm-hmm. So you have to cater for the subcategories. So it, it, it gets very difficult in terms of, from start to finish, in terms of the process of getting a disability in there. But when we scale, hopefully I'll have two or three teams rather than one person doing it. So yeah, I think for us, it's um, the, the dream is to get it to, you know, the most, you know, the most accessible fitness that there's ever been. That's the dream. Yeah. So are you partnering with, customer feedback and really like user feedback or even just like what's your networking consisting of it sounds like you are trying to do your due diligence and really just support the the best way possible for for people living with a particular type of disability what's that process look like for you folks yeah so from the very start i realized that i couldn't really go off my experience because my experience is perceived as privilege i've Obviously, have the best facilities, best, you know, coaching that money can buy. So actually, I'm actually quite, I'm unrelatable to a lot of disability, a lot of, you know, a lot of disabled people. Mm -hmm. So from the start, we created a disability focus group uh, made up of a number of disabilities. And they went through the build with us to criticize it, to play with it, to give us as much feedback as possible. And that's been very helpful because one, it's opened my eyes in terms of what an app an app like this needs, um, but also how different dis- disabled, like disabled people think. So for example, what's accessible for somebody with, you know, a visual impairment isn't someone 
isn't the same as somebody that's got a hearing impairment. Sure. And we had to really, really, well, I learned a lot because obviously I was born disabled, but I I learned so much. Uh, it actually kind of challenged my kind of bias. So um, it was mm-hmm. good to have that focus group all the way along. We still use them. But we've obviously added to that focus group as we've gone along um, when, when the app got built and launched. So yeah, without them, um, there'll be no app really. So I'm quite thankful to to them to, you know, for, the, for their patience, but also for for me demanding that they criticize it as well. Because, you know, a lot of people, obviously they like the app and they give me good feedback, but I always say to people, I don't want the good stuff, I want the bad stuff. So I don't yeah. improve, so. And Ali, what, where are you at in the journey? What do you need to, in order to be able to scale, to be able to realize the vision that you, uh, that you have for, for, the, for the product? I think more expertise in, in the technical aspect. So I think our next hire is going to be some sort of CTO. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, uh, yeah, because both founders are, are, we're not we're not technical people, and I think that puts us at a disadvantage. But we've built something which is quite good for to non technical people. Mm-hmm. I think for us as well, like capital is a huge thing for us. To build something like this is expensive, and for us, it's it's probably the the one thing probably stopping us scaling at the level I want at at the moment. So we're going for a funding round at the moment. We've got about seventy percent committed to the round, which is good. We just need to get, you know, that that thirty percent. And you know, I think when we get that, I think um, we'll do some damage in the next couple of years. Awesome. awesome, yeah. So, Ali, I when I read this in your bio, I secretly loved and hated it at the same time because you mentioned you're a PhD candidate. I am as well, so I I love it because I can relate. I hate it because I can relate. <laughs> um, so it, your your PhD research is focused on anti-doping and parasport. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about what you're finding in your research or can you elaborate a little bit on where that interest came from? Yeah, so some context powerlifting when I started competing was on paper the the dirtiest sport at the Paralympic Games in terms of positive tests for drugs. Mm. And that fascinated me thinking like why is the system not catching these drug sheets? Like, what are they doing to stay ahead? The issue is a lot of the research is focused on Olympic sports and non-disabled athletes when it comes to prevalence of doping. But nothing is looked at when it comes to disability. And obviously the Paralympic Games now are so big and the rewards are so vast Mm -hmm. that you're going to get some people that will cheat. It's just human nature Mm -hmm. when the rewards are so big. So my PhD is trying to look at the prevalence of doping, but also classification in parasport. So manipulating somebody's impairment to get into a a better Mm. class, uh, which is another form of doping, but not really categorized as such. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm trying to collect kind of data to kind of um, see how big the problem is. And hopefully I can inform the system on recommendations that, you know, we can see that could help in the future. That's been a very long process because not only athletes want to speak out, but I think it's important work that needs to be done. And yeah, I've, I think I'm three years in now, so it's been a it's been difficult balancing the, the startup and the PhD. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> You're speaking my language. <laughs> Super interesting. Yeah, I, I read your bio, and I want to talk about powerlifting. Nadia read your bio, and she wanted to talk about PhDs, right? So <laughs> that's what gets her excited. So Ali, so. Uh, Great to talk with you and uh, learn more about the app. 
what what are some things that you know in terms of resources that our, our audience should be looking at either from an accessibility or you know other what are some of the things that uh, that you would share as things that are influential for you it's a good question um i think because i've had to learn so quickly there are some really good disability startups in the uk that mm. uh that have accessibility at the center of it so for example there's an app called sociability that rates uh, accessible places when i first saw it i was like oh that's a great idea and it actually kind of relates to our explore section but they don't do gyms they only do places oh. so that's where so that's where the idea for me came from in terms of the gym stuff i think for me it's 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 not about the resources it's actually talking to a lot of disabled people with varying impairments to understand their needs and what they need out of a product. Because you've got so many companies that preach disability that are not that accessible. Mm. Uh, and that's what I found. Uh, you go to a lot of the disability charities that represent these impairments mm -hmm. and they don't even know what they're doing either because they're run by non-disabled people. Mm. So for me, like the, the best resource is actually going out there and networking with like-minded people to really understand um, you know, what, what accessibility means to them. I know that sounds weird, but for, for the last two years, that's the one thing I've taken on board where just talk to people because actually a lot of the organizations are not there yet either. Mm -hmm. That is very true. Well, Ali Javad, um, great insight, um, you know, great work that you are doing. Um, we'll make sure that we put links to in the show notes um, and of course throw it as we post you know around how to to reach you as well as exercise thank you so much for joining us this week on inclusive collective no pleasure thanks for having me on stay with us folks we'll be right back with our con reflections and raves and rants Welcome back, folks. We just finished chatting with Ali Javad, the co-founder of Accessorize. Rob, what a really incredible story. I love his background. I love the, you know, the kind of the information he provided to us about people living with disabilities and the lack of access to like fitness, gyms, things like that. What was like your takeaways from this conversation? Yeah, it reminded me I need to work out more. That was <laughs> one too. thing. And <laughs> me too. I love founders, right? Like you see your wheels start start turning of all the great things that you could do with an app like that. Sure. And I loved even and it was I'm, I'm glad we got there at the end. Ali was talking about how even some of the organizations that advocate for folks with disabilities are run by people that don't have those disabilities and therefore yeah. right. they you know sometimes you know haven't got it figured out what accessibility means for the folks that they're serving as well and so that's just a really interesting point and so and obviously going through the process of building that app he's really had to get, dive deep into what accessibility means for the folks that he's building it for and so right. it's just super cool and you know just a really great reminder of, of digging into and, and understanding and, and we've had other folks that are experts in accessibility as well say the same thing is that that <laughs> you can you, you can you can learn but you know you have to get that perspective from the people dealing with the particular issue or, or ability issue yeah seventy thousand apps he said fitness apps yeah yeah i think and i have all of them one it hasn't really done anything for me on, 
it's wild. So I'm not surprised, but I'm surprised if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, really great work that he's doing. So yeah, thanks again for to Ali for joining us. Okay, okay. Nadia, let's go ahead and rant and rave. What do you got for us? All right. All right um, so I'll start with the rant. Um, so NASCAR has been accused of bias against white men um, and its diversity efforts, according to Bloomberg. I'll just remind folks that NASCAR has one black driver and only one non-American Mexican driver and no women cup drivers since 2018. So it's just funny that some people don't see that as a systemic or structural problem in terms of their representation. That's my rant. (laughs) I thought, I'm glad you said in their diversity efforts, you started out and you said, uh, that NASCAR is, is, uh, discriminates against white men. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure the white men no, are pretty safe. It's and, accused and, and, <laughs> of bias against white yeah, men. Yeah. And that's and the, yeah, and that's our friend, Stephen Miller from the America first legal fund that yep. is filing this. And so again, they're, they're just going to keep doing this. And so I did a little bit of a deep dive into the rabbit hole that is Stephen Miller because I was oh, just like, okay, what, what kind of person does this, right? Like yeah. they spend their entire life trying to figure out how to overturn affirmative action within private enterprises. Yeah. What'd you and find there's out? A, there's a big void there. There's a, this is a, this person has problems, right? So oh, just, really? I, so, wow. so let's, yeah, we not should, surprised. let's not give him too much airtime unless he wants to come on the show, which I think that would be fun, but it's also like- You would love you, that. <laughs> kind of. It's like, but do you want, how close do you want to get to, to, you know, like the, the void, right? The abyss, right? Do you want yeah. to stare into the eyes of the abyss or do you really just want to kind of move on and enjoy your life? So yeah, I don't um, have the energy for it. So it's awful. Yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah. check that out when you get a chance. Um, sure. All right. So some positive stuff. Yeah. We had elections this last week because we're still a democracy as far as I can tell. And for now, anyway. I was like, sort uh, of. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so a couple, few nice things that are happening in Philly, my town. Sherelle Parker was the first woman elected mayor of that great city of brotherly love. I guess it's also sisterly love now. St. Louis Park, suburb of Minneapolis, elected their first Somali-American mayor, uh, Nadia Muhammad. And yeah, I know. Uh, Wichita, Kansas, elected their first Asian-American mayor, Lily Wu. And in St. Paul, Minnesota, it was in line. All all the votes as of this time have not been counted yet to have an all-women city council, 100%. 100 wow. percent women sitting in the city council. So just watch, wow. watch out for St. Paul, Minnesota, to rock it to all those like best places to live uh, lists. And then in Virginia, Danica Rome won her race to become the first Virginia and the second ever transgender state senator in the United States. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's we're winning, so, Nadia. We're winning. We're winning. So there's really no good path. News. There's no path forward that isn't inclusive. Just remember that. Yeah. You know, thank you for sharing that. It's really good to hear some good news. Um, so I appreciate that. All right, folks, that's it for Inclusive Collective. Just a reminder that if you're looking for DEI and workplace culture strategy, consulting, problem solving, or training, you can reach me at Nadia at NASConsultants.com. And you can reach Rob at Rob at TacanoConsulting.com. Inclusive Collective is a production of Raphilia Media and edited by Ari Mathay. We would love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at raphilian.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And, you know, be sure to follow us uh, on LinkedIn so you can subscribe to our Inclusive Collective newsletter. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us. We love five stars, (laughs) so please do that wherever you get your podcasts today. 
thank you again to Ali Javad. We will be back next week. Be well. Bye, Nadia. Bye.